Hey there, this is L.Y. Marlowe, award-winning author, social entrepreneur, and a fear strategist, and you're listening to Cut to the Chase podcast. Stepping out beyond boundaries takes courage and the ability to dream. We are excited to share our new audio podcast called Cut to the Chase. The structure of this podcast embodies open dialogue with friends, family, and professional colleagues talking about things that impact our ability to thrive. We hope that you will join our unscripted, unbridled podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cut to the Chase, episode 110, entitled My Story. Now, to my listeners today, the story is not going to be about me. It's going to be about an award-winning author, someone that I have so much admiration for and that I respect for what she is doing through her outreach and a lot of her campaign and through her authorship with the both books that she's already published. And so it's going to be about her story. And so today, you know, I found a quote that basically says behind Every person lies a story. There's a reason why they are always there. They are just like that because they want something in the past created from them. And sometimes it's impossible to fix them. Now, Behind Every Person Lies a Story really resonates not only with me, but it also resonates with my featured guests, and it surely resonates with our fans. And our featured guest today is an award-winning author, a sought-after, empowering advocate and influencer whose life journey took her from a legacy of domestic violence to the upwards of corporate America, and now a life devoted to inspiring other women. Quite, quite powerful. Her story would be notable enough, giving her tenacity to shatter the status quo, or excuse me, tenacity to to shatter the status quo, but it's also her courage and decision to step down from a progressive and stellar 20-plus year corporate career to pursue her passion in writing, where she has won an award for Color Me Butterfly, the compelling and heart-wrenching story behind the national organization she founded Saving Promise, inspired by five generations of mothers and daughters in her family that survived more than 60 years of domestic violence, including her granddaughter and her little girl named Promise. This heartfelt and captivating story of tragedy and triumph inspired her memoirs, Don't Look at the Monster, One Woman's Journey to Embrace a Purposeful Life and Monster Rise, a woman empowerment brand to inspire women to confront their fears and embrace their passion, purpose, and power. She's also a pioneer and principal of the Harvard Learning Lab, a domestic violence research and development lab for domestic violence prevention. She's a distinguished speaker. She's a trainer. She's an advocate. She's a recipient of numerous leadership awards, engineering, project achievements, and advocate awards throughout acclaiming subject matter, media expert, and commentator. Now, the list of accolades go on and on and on as I resonate just for a moment. Because when you think about domestic violence and when you think about 
what someone has gone through in dealing with domestic violence, it is very heart-wrenching. And so before I let her speak, I would like to say that this quote is really dedicated to her. And the quote starts out like this. This is my life, my story, my book. I will no longer let anyone else write it, nor will I apologize for the edits that I make. Without further ado, to our listeners, to our audience, and to our fellowship out there, I would like to introduce you guys and girls and women and men to Miss L.Y. Marlowe. Do you have any opening remarks? Well, Gregory, you know, when I hear someone share my bio, and I don't even think of it as a bio or resume or profile, it really is, it, it really makes me think about my story and really the story behind the story. And if you were to ask me, as you just did, do I have any opening remarks? The biggest remark that comes to my mind is the five generations of women and daughters, mothers and daughters in my family, from my grandmother to my mother to myself to my daughter, and now to my daughter's little girl named Promise, who recently turned 14 years old. And so my remark is everything I do, everything I do is a testament to not the suffering, but the survival of each of us and those that we also inspire and the countless millions upon millions of women, men and children. Domestic violence is not just a women's issue, it's a community public health issue. Mm -hmm. to the countless millions globally that suffers from this terrible, horrible, what is now known as the second pandemic. Right, right. We certainly thank you for sharing that opening remark with us. We're also very delighted to have you on the program to talk about something that is it, it represents so much tragedy, but in the same aspect, so much triumph when someone takes those just undeniable type things that have occurred to them and, and really kind of move it in a positive light. And, uh, you know, with your two books that you've written, your memoirs, as well as the Color Me Butterfly that are out there, uh, you know, there's a lot of praise that we'd like to give you right up front for, for having the strength and the courage to share that openly, um, you know, with, with us. And so I'd like to be able to jump into at least the first question that I have as it relates to escaping a life of poverty and dealing with a pregnancy combined with domestic violence all at the same time. Hmm. Most people would say that's like three strikes and you're out. But in your mind, you realize that there was a higher power and that there was something that was going to prevail you above this. And we'd like for you to take us back to that time and walk us through that. Certainly. And I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is I was five years old. And I remember I, along with my four siblings and my mother, each of us dressed in black, mm -hmm. was at my father's my biological father's funeral. Mm -hmm. And I remember, Gregory, this man came up to me and my brother. We were known as twins, even though we were not biologically twins. We were just literally nine months apart. 
my mother and father had five children and we were born literally nine months apart and we were in the same grade at always the same age. And then he would turn the next year and then I would turn right after him. And we were always the same height. And I remember the two of us, my brother and I, standing on our tippy toes and trying to peer down into this casket where my 29-year-old father, 32-year-old father lay. And this man came up behind us and he said, would you like to see your daddy? And we nodded. And I remember him hoisting us up on either side of him and tilting us down into that casket. And as a five-year-old little girl, what went through my mind in that moment, and I remember it as vivid as I I am today, Mm -hmm. and I'm 55 now, and Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, does this mean mama don't have to cry no more? Mm-hmm. And what what was going through my heart in that moment, mama don't have to cry no more, is acknowledging that my father laying into this casket, who, by the way, was murdered um, by two white men for being mm-hmm. black in front of mm-hmm. my mother. But mm-hmm. what those white men didn't know in murdering my father was that they were unjustly killing a man, but also beginning to stop the legacy of domestic violence that my father would put on my mother, horribly abusing my mother. And so that five-year-old little girl peering down into that casket, confused about how my daddy is now gone because he was murdered for being, you know, black, and how my mother was now left alone to raise these five babies on her own and being confused about what that meant, torn about should I be sad losing my daddy who was loving to his children. He never harmed us. But Mm -hmm. I saw the scars. I saw the knife wound on my mother's leg. I saw the knife wound on her uh, chest all the way down to the top of from the top of her neck all the way down to her navel because my father had beaten her so bad once that he burst both her lungs and she was in the hospital and now told to kiss her five babies goodbye because she would not make it through the night. And she told the story as I tell it in Color Me Butterfly, how she prayed and she felt a higher spirit speak to her and said, if you don't let nobody touch you, I promise you, you will walk out of here. And she did not, she would not let the doctors touch her. She would not let the nurses touch her. They told her she was going to die that night because of the horrible abuse that my father had inflicted on her. And she would go on to live. And not long after that, my father was murdered. And so I was torn about that, those, those vivid memories that I remember as that five-year-old child of those horrible things, seeing my daddy lay in this casket and not and torn about should I be happy or sad. And then going on to now growing up in the projects. We grew up in one of the worst crime-inflicted, violent projects in Philadelphia called Wilson mm-hmm. Park Projects. Mm-hmm. And my, my mother would go on to raise her children, and she would meet a man about a year and a half later who would become our stepfather And the Mm -hmm. interesting thing about that is that my stepfather and my mother, who were married nearly 40 something years until my mother passed away 10 years ago. What was the interesting dynamic was that I was a little girl who was torn between seeing a biological father who was violent towards her mother and then meeting a man who in the 50 years, on nearly 50 years of my life of knowing this man, I never heard him raise his voice to my mother, let alone his hand. And this man would come along and not only raise, marry my mother, but raise her five children as his own. Mm -hmm. And so I would go on now from age six to 16, where my mother didn't allow my sisters and I to date until we were 16. And I remember getting, being excited on my 16th birthday because not only was I going to be able to date, but I already had them picked out. 
<laughs> and <laughs> he was one of the most charming, popular boys in my high school. Mm-hmm. And he liked me. Of all the girls, he wanted me. And I was just just dumbfounded with how could he choose me? I'm thin, I'm long, I'm tall. I'm, you know, I, I was, a, you know, and I guess I, I guess I looked okay because he kicked, he chose me. Mm-hmm. And I was so over overwhelmed with him choosing me that by the time I was 16 and a half years old, maybe six months into dating and that first punch came, I was to blame because see, mm-hmm. he chose me. And by choosing me, I was worthy of his love and I was also worthy of his abuse because I must have done something wrong. So he told me. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was 17 years old, I was pregnant, being horribly abused and in fear more so of telling my mother than of getting out of that situation because my mother, having come out of that situation with my father, but also with her own father, my grandfather, she watched my grandmother be horribly abused by my grandfather, Isaac, but not only be abused by my grandfather, Isaac, but abuse his children. You know, my mother would tell the story and I tell it in color me butterfly, how once he made her youngest brother eat a dead rat in front of them because he peed the bed and his Mm. way of abusing and, and chastising all eight of the children was he would make the one child strip and beat that child until it bled in front of the other children. So his way of doing it was to instill fear in them all. So they were afraid of not only doing something wrong themselves, but of any number of them doing something wrong because it didn't matter who did the wrong. They all got punished and they either got punished physically or they, they got punished emotionally and mentally, you know, watching her three-year-old brother eat a dead rat that he fried up and made them sit at the kitchen table and watch was just as harmful as eating that rat. I felt like I ate that rat when I was writing that story. And so my mother would come from this horribly abusive relationship and family with her biological father and watching my grandmother be terribly abused by this man for, for, for all of her life until she met my biological father at 16 years old and they courted. And then she was married by 18 and by 23, 24, she had five children. And now here he was being horribly abusive. And my mother would tell the story, Gregory, as I was writing Color Me Butterfly, she wasn't sure if she was more afraid of her father who inflicted the type of terrible pain on her and her siblings or her husband. And she would tell the story how the first time my father hit her, she ran home to her mother and her mm-hmm. my, my grandmother in her Southern dialect said, that's your husband. Go back home to your husband. Because back then, growing up in the South and and the family, you know, like that slogan in 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 uh, in in um, Las Vegas, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what goes on in home stays in the home. And that's mm-hmm. your husband and you don't break up the family. And so my mother went home and she endured this horrible abuse until those two white men killed my father. And then when my stepfather, who lives about 20 minutes away from me now, he's almost 80 years old and I help take care of him. He's my father. He's my dad. And so mm-hmm. I would grow up. And by the time I was in this abusive relationship, growing up in poverty, growing up with domestic violence, of legacy of domestic violence, and now in this abusive relationship and 17 years old pregnant, I remember, Gregory, the first time I made a decision that today was going to be the day. I say every abused woman has what I call their D-Day, their day Mm -hmm. of reckoning where it is enough. Mm -hmm. I was eight months pregnant and he was beating me throughout this pregnancy for the full eight months. And I would Mm -hmm. hide the bruises and everything. And I remember thinking I had just discovered 
um, when I got pregnant, that if that child was to survive, that that would be the only child that I was ever going to be able to have. So mm-hmm. I knew that if he kept beating me and we lost this child, I would never be able to give birth to a child again. So as that baby grew inside of me, my will to survive grew. And I remember I was eight months pregnant. I finally got the courage that I was going to stand up to him and I was going to tell him no more. He was not going to beat me no more. And he was not going to harm or kill our baby. And he came over to my home and we went out in the Wilson Park project. There are these concrete um, porches. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, come outside on the porch with me. And I stood up to him and I said, what you do to me ain't right. And I'm not going to let you hurt me no more. And I'm not going to let you hurt my baby. And I remember seeing him lift his still footed boot up. And all I felt was it come crashing into my eight month pregnant belly. Mm. And I went slamming to this concrete ground. And then as though that wasn't enough, he spit on me as mm. I lay on that ground now hemorrhaging. And he spit on me and he said, you will never leave me until I'm ready for you to leave. And when he left that evening, I walked, I called my best friend my in high school and I asked her to come walk with me. And we walked as I hemorrhaged. And I would not know if my baby was alive or dead until I heard her scream in the delivery room about three or four weeks later. And people say to me, well, L.Y., did did you feel her? Did you know if she moved? I was traumatized. And I didn't tell nobody. Mm -hmm. To tell somebody would be to get me in trouble because I was thinking my mother after my father, my biological passed away. And all I saw now from my stepfather was a loving man. And mm-hmm. my mother was like that, that part of her life was over and she was not going to have no girls grow up like that. So I was mm-hmm. more afraid of telling my mother than telling anyone. So sure. it would be when that doctor spanked my daughter's butt and I heard her scream was when I knew that my daughter lived. And it was then that I made a decision right then that either I can stay in this or I can get out of it. And I wasn't just talking about the relationship. I was talking about coming up out of this poverty, this mindset, because Mm -hmm. most of the girls that lived on my block that I knew, we all shared a common thing. We were in Mm -hmm. abusive relationships. We were pregnant and we were living in poverty. Right. And I made a decision after my daughter was born. I remember I got home from the hospital and I started packing. I had already went and found an apartment. But my mother, who's very old fashioned, said, you can't take that baby out for one month. That was the old fashioned way of thinking. You know, you don't take sure. the baby out in the air for one month. So I said, OK, when the month is over, I'm moving into my apartment. And I found an apartment and I was already working part time. And I've been working part time by a woman. I'll never forget her name, Brenda I who was the one that finally confronted my abuser and told him, don't ever put his name on hands on me again. And she gave me a job and she helped me find an apartment. And I found an apartment clear across town. And a month later, I moved into that apartment. And not only did I move into that apartment and after I graduated high school, I then went on and I enrolled in community college. Mm-hmm. And I would mm-hmm. go to school for 16 years straight. And this was before, you know, online learning. I would go to school. I remember one time I was probably in my seventh or eighth year. I would take two, three classes at night. And sometimes I didn't have a babysitter. So I would take my daughter to school with me and I would put her in the back of the room with her homework. And I would sit up front. And I remember one night uh, the professor said, Marlo, you stay when he dismissed the class. And after everyone left, he said, I'm going to say this to you, and I want you to hear me very clearly. If you bring that child to class with you one more time, we're going to charge her tuition. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what, Gregory? I would have paid it because that was my way out. Sure. That was going to be my way out. And Mm -hmm. I would would find who I can, and if I couldn't find, I would take her to class with me. I would do whatever it took because, thank God, my daughter's father ended up going to prison 
And mm-hmm. that and and his going to prison ultimately saved my life because just before he went to prison, probably a month before he went to prison, he had held a gun to my head mm. and told me if I said one word, he would shoot. So I knew it was a matter of time before he killed me. And so mm. he eventually went to prison and I would continue to go to school for 16 years at night to earn three degrees, including an MBA, because I said I would never want my daughter to go through what I had gone through, especially a daughter who I wasn't even sure would be born, stillborn. Sure. Well, I, um, I'm truly lost for words. Your, your story is, is so moving. It's, uh, compelling. It's, it's completely provocative in the aspect of all of the ups and downs and, and just a sense of survival in itself. I mean, because it seemed like there were so many points in your life where, you were facing life or death type of circumstances. And, you know, to be where you are today, um, there had to be a higher power. There had to be, you know, uh, a tremendous blessing looking down upon you to say, you know, you will get through this. And uh, we're glad, we're certainly definitely glad to be having this discussion with you. Um, You know, there was many questions that I, I wanted to ask, but your story, your stories really moved me in, in, in the aspect of, of everything that you've stated. And I guess there's one question that really kind of comes to mind as I'm trying to get my own thoughts together, because like I said, it's really touched my soul is, are you divorced now from your, 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 your husband? or ex-husband? I was never married to my daughter's father. I later married, and yes, I'm divorced to a different man, but I I was never married to him. I And I would go on just to have that one child as it was predicted. Um, I never had children by my ex-husbands. Um, and, um, but yes, yes. So um, I don't have a relationship with my daughter's father. He's now out of prison. Um, he was in prison most of her life. My daughter is now 37. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would go on and I, I would marry a few times, actually, um, mm-hmm. because I was, you know, one thing I was very clear about was, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic. And sure. even though I didn't understand romance in the way that, you know, the Cinderella story version of mm-hmm. it, um, I I wanted a family because the one thing that I did take away from seeing my mother and my stepfather married was that there is hope to have love. And mm-hmm. um, even my stepfather to this day doesn't know how to live without my mother. Um, he never will remarry. He won't date. <laughs> She's been gone about almost 11 years now. And I saw this loving relationship and, and I wanted to have that. And um, unfortunately, you know, it I never really was able to to have that with with a man. But um, what I did want was for my daughter to not know what I had been through. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, unfortunately, she would go on to be involved in abusive relationships, pretty much mm-hmm. repeat my story with promised father, my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, met him. And the thing that I did after going to school for 16 years and I would go work um, in these uh, very uh, uh, progressive, influential positions in corporate America, you know, Mm -hmm. major Mm -hmm. global corporations like IBM. Mm -hmm. And um, I would um, was a leader. You know, I won multiple leadership awards and all those kinds of things. And, Mm -hmm. um, And I did what I thought I was supposed to do with my daughter is I made sure she had a life that was un, un unlike what I had. You know, I would right. I would you know go on and you know buy the 
beautiful suburban homes and she'd go to the best schools and everything. And she ended up going to college, you know, a four year university college, University of Maryland. And um, and she came home, you know, in her third year, um, in her junior year and met promised father. And now her story took a different trajectory. And now she was in this very abusive relationship. And I thought I was doing everything right, trying to protect her from that. Mm -hmm. But what I did not do is that I did not talk to her about it. Just one of the questions that I'm oftentimes asked is, how is it possible, even conceivable, that domestic violence could prevail in one family of four generations of women, mothers and daughters. Mm -hmm. And it would take me a long time to answer that question. And I would give the textbook answer and, uh, you know, the trauma and, you know, all the things that you talk about and you hear in a textbook. And it, and if I finally was able to distill it down to one word and that's silence, my grandmother didn't talk to my mother about it. My mother didn't really talk to me about it. And I'm not ashamed to say that I did not talk to my daughter about it, not until I heard Promise scream, literally mm. scream at six mm. months old as she lay on the bed next to my daughter as my daughter was being strangled mm. and almost killed for the second time by Promise's father. And wow. I remember getting the call about that and going to get my daughter and Promise to safety. And I remember the next day writing a letter to the only person in the world that I thought could help me and my family. And I had just finished writing Color Me Butterfly because Color Me Butterfly ended with my daughter going to college. Mm -hmm. Probably not even a thought yet. So mm -hmm. people don't know that a fifth generation would prevail after Color Me Butterfly. You ended on a triumph. It says from tragedy to triumph. Well, it was triumphant mm -hmm. because you almost felt like the, the cycle was broken. My daughter went to college and now she was going to start a new generation and a new legacy, but only to get involved in an abusive relationship. And I remember having just written Color Me Butterfly it had won at this point, it was going up the scale of winning awards. It would ultimately win 10 awards, but had just been named to win a National Best Book of the Year Award. And I remember writing this letter the next day after getting my daughter and promised to safety. And that letter started with Dear Oprah. And the opening of that letter said, Dear Oprah, last night my daughter was strangled and almost killed for the second time by Promise's father. And I would mm -hmm. write this, this very emotional letter. I go back and read it often. It was August 25th, 2007. Mm -hmm. And I said some words in that letter that ultimately changed the trajectory of my life. I said, Oprah, if you cannot help me save my daughter, please help me save promise. And, and I told her about moving my daughter three different times to three different states. And somehow this person finding her and constantly, you know, living this nightmare of not knowing if that fatal call was eventually going to come. Mm -hmm. And people often say to me, well, uh, why did Oprah ever respond to which I now respond and very graciously that although Oprah never responded. Oprah actually gave me a gift by not responding. Mm -hmm. Because had Oprah responded, I probably would have went on her show. I would have told my story and my whole legacy would have been wrapped around. I was on an Oprah show, which I would have been ever forever indebted to her for having me to tell my story and the many of lives that my story probably would have touched. Right. But I believe, and you said this, you had to have a higher power and a blessing on your life. Mm -hmm. I believe there was a higher purpose and a blessing on my life. And it was not for Oprah to tell my story. It was for me to not only just tell my story, but to use that story to change lives. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I would, after I wrote that letter and I said, help me save promise, people think I came up with this cute little name called Saving Promise to name my organization. No, the name of that organization came from that letter to Oprah when I said, help me save promise. Right. And I would eventually step down after writing that letter from Oprah from my corporate career and launching a national organization called Saving Promise with a focus on prevention. 
Mm-hmm. There's a focus on prevention, not waiting until, you know, somebody is laying on a bed and, and nearly strangled and almost killed in front of their six months. So not watching my father in the casket and being confused about whether or not I should be sad or glad that my mother wasn't going to scream no more. Not watching my mother to the day of her death from lung cancer, knowing that she carried that scar from the top of her neck down to her navel from the scar that my father had beaten her with and not watching my grandmother, who after finally my grandfather would go to prison for being a violent man and who would never, ever, my grandmother never, ever had another relationship for the rest of her life with a man. Mm. Never, never remarried never dated. She had a friend she called George and he came over for tea once in a while. But my Uh grandmother never got to live a life of love again. And she died. She was nearly uh, uh, 90 years old when she passed away. Uh And so, so prevention for me is, you know, and people say, well, prevention, why that's, that's impossible because how can you prevent everybody from not being affected by domestic violence. I say to them, well, prevention is not one dimensional. Prevention is three levels of prevention. Uh It's primary prevention, stopping those from getting abused. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about educating our young people. I'm talking grade level, five years old, you know, in age appropriate manner, right? Uh Uh I'm talking you know, preventing ed- corporations offering prevention and education to their employees. I'm talking schools educating um, um, students. I'm talking faith-based organizations talking about it at the pulpit. I'm talking healthcare workers screening their 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 patients about it. That's prevention, uh-huh. so that those that are being you know have not been affected by it, they know they have a choice. The Uh secondary prevention, which is preventing those from reoccurrence. So from my daughter who was continuously in, finally got out of a relationship with Promise Father, and I used to say to her, I swear you must have a bullhorn on your forehead to attract men that are Uh abusive because I don't understand why you can't, why you keep getting involved. And I'm not blaming her, but I also felt Uh like she had to make a choice on the type of person she let in her life. Cause sometimes, you know, I like the way Maya Angelou once said it. She said, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them the first time. Uh Right. And Uh so if they tell you, if you see that they're controlling, if you see that there's red flags and risk, and we sometimes as women, we get so caught up in the, in the dating and the, and the courting mm-hmm. and the romancing and, you know, mm-hmm. all the, you know, I say they send a representative instead of who they really are. We get caught mm-hmm. up in that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's secondary prevention of, wait a minute, there's a red flag. I've been there before. I don't want to go back there. I'm going to move away from this one. Right. And then there's tertiary right. prevention, which is restoring people back to health and wellness. And when mm-hmm. I talk about prevention, I'm not just talking about, um, victims, whether it's, it's a man, because there are women out there that are now being as abusive as men, mm-hmm. right? But I'm also talking about abusers as well. They need help too. Right. They need help too because oftentimes they come from a vicious cycle of abuse. My grandfather, who started this legacy in my family, it wasn't his father that was abusive, it was his mother. <laughs> Uh, it was his mother. He used to say to my mother and her siblings, y'all children don't know what it's like to be beat. Uh, the way his father, his mother beat him. So he wow. thought he was rearing his children the way he was reared. Uh, so prevention is a comprehensive concept. It doesn't mean it's sort of like it's saying, you know, I'm going to make sure no one ever suffer from work hunger again. That's that's impossible unless you can guarantee that not one soul on the planet Earth will ever go hungry again. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can educate them about, you know, how to how to how to make sure that they don't end up in, in poverty or how to make sure that they do the kinds of things to eat healthy and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Well, L.Y., uh, 
man, this uh, from soul crushing struggles to painful loss and everything in between. I mean, it, it is it is really tough to listen to the tragedy and listen to the things that could have been prevented at some stints in, in, in your life and as well as in your daughter's life and in your granddaughter's life. But you did bring up a valid point that I'd like to touch upon here just briefly. Growing up in silence. I mean, when we think about that as the black community, sometimes we've brought forth generations of silence that could have been stopped by the decisions that we've made, but we refuse to. And as you're listening to me talk about this, I would challenge those that are still living in silence, and I'm talking internal. I'm talking living within your own family, living within your extended family, living within your beyond extended family, second, third, fourth cousins. Why? Why don't we communicate? Why don't we reach out to one another? Why don't we show the empathy and compassion towards one another that is needed in the time of need? Why do we continue to relic in the silence? We know that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. We talk about using our voice, but when it's time to use our voice, we don't do it. Silence to our community is not the answer. Mm-hmm. And as you've heard from this story of struggles and painful loss and and domestic violence and abuse and tragedy and and life-threatening situations, it's not the answer. Mm-hmm. It's not the answer. And so I challenge everyone that's listening. And for those of us that have been listening, look at yourself internally and stop living in silence because sometimes you may be the only person that someone else needs to be their hero, to be their savior, yes. to prevent something tragically from happening. Let's think about that, people. Let's think about that. L.Y., uh, this this has been, I, I you know, I've had so many programs that they captivate me, they move me, listening to people's stories and being tied into their journey. This is one that really will go down in my heart of hearts as for you to be here today and for you to accomplish all of the great things that you've accomplished. Heaven has sent us an angel. And I really want to say that most definitely you continue to press forward in all of the body of work that you're doing. And, and we hope that you put out a third book or maybe a fourth book, but it is needed in our cultural, in our communities to help prevent some of the things that have gone in silence. Mm-hmm. And it's time for us to stop. You know, we're out there campaigning a lot of great things, but let's campaign what's going on in our own community to focus in on that positive change. Mm -hmm. And so I have one quote here that basically says, my story isn't a sweet story. It isn't harmonizing. It's like inventing a story. It tastes of folly and bewilderment of madness and dreams like a life of all people who no longer wants to live a lie to themselves. Hmm. And let's just replace that word lie with silence, people. Mm -hmm. 
and think about what that means to you. L.Y., this has been an honor and a true, true blessing to have you on the program to share your story of deeply moving. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just it's really breathtaking. And what I would like to do here is just for a moment for those that would like to reach out and maybe purchase a book from you or if they would like to um, seek you out for for opportunities with your nonprofit organization um, or, or for that matter, just uh, reach out to you. Maybe they're in a situation uh, where domestic violence is, is an ongoing issue and they're trying to figure out how to remove themselves from that situation. Could you give us the contact of where they can buy your book? And could you also provide us with some closing remarks as takeaways with regards to uh, anyone that might be in that position that you were in that is needing that help? Of course, of course. Um, yes, I, I, I welcome um, anyone to reach out to me. They can um, find Saving Promise, you know, contact me through Saving Promise at savingpromise.org. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have um, a, my own personal website, lymarlow.com, L-Y-M-A-R-L-O-W, mm-hmm. um, where I do women empowerment work with that and workshops and those kinds of things. Um, and and through lymarlow.com, um, they, they'll find information about Color Me Butterfly and my second memoir, Don't Look at the Monster, and, and um, some of my other works. But yes, um, and if I had one thing to close out in this moment, it's this, Gregory. Mm-hmm. Every time I am invited to share whatever platform it might be, whether it's on a stage, it's on a podcast, it's on a radio, mm-hmm. um, it's as though God just kind of takes me out of my personal self mm-hmm. and replace it with a statute of what my life is intended to be. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave the legacy or the thoughts on this program with the horrificness of some of what I share. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want you to think about my grandmother who had to stand uncourageously by watching my grandfather force her three-year-old son to eat a dead rat. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to think about the times that my mother lay in the hospital countless times from the horrific abuse that my father had instilled on her. Mm-hmm. And I don't want them to think about the story I told with being kicked in my eighth month pregnant belly or having had a gun held to my head or my daughter who lay on that bed next to Promise when mm-hmm. Promise was six months old being strangled until she nearly died. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about Promise. And I'm not talking about my sweet little baby who's now just turned 14 years old, 14 years old. And she's at that stage now where mm-hmm. we have to start educating her. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to think about my promise, but I want you to think about the promise for us all. Right. If we would release the silence and the stigma and the shame and the social conditions and the stories that we've been told that what goes on in our home stays in our home or what goes on in our community stays in our community or what goes on in our own personal heads stays Mm -hmm. in our heads. We got to open up and we got to be part of the solution. Right. Dismiss the other S's, dismiss the stigma, dismiss the shame, dismiss the silence, dismiss the social conditioning and think about the solution. Every Mm -hmm. one of us, every one of us can make a difference. So the next time you see that coworker 
through your Zoom screen in this day and time that look like there might be something that's not quite right, especially if she got a bruise? Or the next time you see a man who shows up with his head held low because maybe he's being abused or maybe he's the abuser. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you see a child who's very quiet and you're wondering something's not right with that child. Mm-hmm. Speak up. Right. Speak up. There is something that is amiss. And it's time for us to break our silence in our families, our communities, but more importantly, our silence within ourselves. If you are a victim or an abuser or you're somebody who is witnessing it, do something. Mm-hmm. Speak up. There's the domestic violence hotline. You can call them if you don't know what to do. You can reach them at 800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. Mm-hmm. You could call them, you know, and, and be, you know, very uh, silent about who you really are. If you want to be silent, you don't have to give them your name. Right. But you could you could you could call and say, you know what, I have a friend or I have a brother or I myself or I'm a I'm a person that tend to get angry and I don't know what to do with this anger because we got to fix both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Break your silence. Imagine what kind of world we would be in if each of us will say the next time I see something that don't feel, look or appear right. I'm going to speak up. Right. Right. Well, we certainly thank you for for sharing those words of encouragement. And uh, this has definitely been it's been an out of mind, out of body experience listening to your story. And I appreciate you certainly being here to share that. And there was one thing that I read from your recent book, and of course, you stated this to me as well. And I would just like to leave this with our audience. It will take some wise words from her three-year-old granddaughter to inspire L.Y. to surrender and embrace a purposeful life. The gifts, the lesson, and the blessings. Folks, I hope if you've listened to this program today, is that there is a message in here for us all. Let's do the right thing. This has been episode 110 entitled My Story. L.Y., thank you very much. We'd love to have you back on the program again. And to everyone out there, please, let's maintain compassion and empathy for everyone, as I always say at the end of every podcast. Let's make this world a better place, and it starts with ourselves. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. This is your host, Gregory Proctor. Cut to the chase. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Cut to the Chase. Stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Cut to the Chase. You'll also find even more great content on our website at www.k2tcpodcast.com. Thank you and catch you on the next episode.